I am Sheen, a scientist, social entrepreneur, Oxford and Cambridge graduate, and you are listening to Dream Girl, my weekly podcast where I chat to incredible women about their journey, career choices, and generally about being awesome. Hello and welcome to Dream Girl. I am Sheen, your host, and my guest today is Jafia Slamka. Jafia and I know each other as being World Economic Forum Global Shapers in the Cambridge Hub, and she's currently doing a PhD in psychology and global mental health at King's College. She just finished an MPhil in social and developmental psychology at Cambridge as well. And she's the founder of Amca Counseling, an online counseling service working with corporate and individual clients addressing workplace-related mental health and the current curator of the Global Shapers Cambridge Hub. She has been involved in multiple COVID-related projects, mental health policy projects, and even women empowerment ones such as Voices. And she has a blog called The Traveling Psychologist. So hello, Sophia. How are you today? Hi, Sheen. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. So where are you at the moment? I'm in Barcelona for the moment, probably till Sunday. Okay. What what are you doing in Barcelona? Anything fun? Um, I've been visiting an an institution called eBay here. Um, okay. Is it's it's um it's a collaboration of a number of universities here, and they do some work on global mental health and also on uh, international development. Oh wow! And and you were allowed to go there. Like they're still doing things in person, even with COVID. Well, when I arrived, they did, and then one week after I arrived, they they all moved virtual. So oh gosh! <laughs> as for now, it's all online as well. <laughs> okay, so so tell us a bit more about the PhD. Okay, um, so this is I've just started the third year of my PhD. Okay, um, and I started off looking at a, a caregiver intervention for families of and caregivers of children uh, with developmental disorders. I'm a psychologist mm-hmm. by background, as, as you said before, and, mm-hmm. and I've always previously worked around the topic of developmental disorders and specifically autism spectrum disorder. So when I started mm-hmm. the PhD, I thought I would like to look at symptom I- improvement using a caregiver intervention that the, the World Health Organization has been uh, leading on. Mm-hmm. And then as... As I was doing the first year of, of my project, I realized that there's so many other factors that impact um, whether or not caregivers have access to healthcare, health facilities, and interventions mm-hmm. in general. And, what kind of and, factors are you, uh, are you referring to? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, mm. So I was I was on field work, and uh, that meant that we were I was shadowing some of the clinicians. And I was, uh, we were doing um, some diagnostic services. And, and so we were meeting families, caregivers who had children with autism, intellectual disability, or other developmental disorders. Mm-hmm. And, and I found it, and all of these caregivers took part in one of, uh, in, in this caregiver intervention that the, the World Health Organization has been developing. Um, mm-hmm. And what I found surprising, but, um, yeah, surprising. I'm not sure if this is the best word, but but what what astonished me was the fact that mm-hmm. how many systemic barriers they were experiencing in terms of accessing support. So, for mm-hmm. example, if they, uh, I I did this field work and this data collection in Ethiopia, and so some of the the communities that we visited, some uh, caregivers, for example, they wouldn't have access to public transportation where it was unaffordable for them. 
And mm-hmm. so because of that, they wouldn't be able to travel to the hospital where they would have access to, to the services they need. Or another mm-hmm. example was um, a mother who had uh, four children and mm-hmm. one of the children had, um, had a severe developmental delay. Uh, mm-hmm. But this developmental delay was also, um, it was relatable to, to, to the lack of nutrition and the la- lack of food uh, of for course. the family. Mm. And so that's, that was also something, you know, the fact that there was no, there was no food, there was, there was a, mm. the family was experiencing hunger and that led partially to the developmental delay of the child. And so mm-hmm. these are the barriers that I, I started to see in, in practice and so mm-hmm. after the first year of the PhD, um, I, I switched my focus a little bit and mm-hmm. I started to look more at how um, service development for families who have a member, a child with a developmental disorder, um, mm-hmm. how that can be improved in different income settings and in different resource settings. Mm-hmm. And particularly, so there's this concept uh, called empowerment, which is something, it's kind of a buzzword in international development. Mm-hmm. And also in, in, in community-based uh, rehabilitation, this is something that's been around for quite some time. So you would read uh, World Health Organization guidelines and you would always come across this term empowerment. Let's empower these persons, yeah. <laughs> these <laughs> families and so yeah. on, right? And then, mm. and then basically I, I was reading this literature about empowerment and then in practice I would, I would meet these families, particularly mothers, and then mm-hmm. I would see that they are... <laughs> they seem to be very far away uh, away from having the control um, and the access to, to the services they, they, they were talking about that they would like to, to have them. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, what I would like to look at in, from the second year of my PhD is what, what that really means to empower a community like this. What are the needs that come from them? What are the mm-hmm. ways in which we can give that control to these families so that they can um, they can they can get the right support and the, the services that they need. So how can we sort of remove these systemic barriers? So yeah, mm-hmm. so long story short, in the beginning, I started off as looking at sort of a clinical symptom improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then very, very quickly, I shifted my, my attention to these um, systemic barriers. But is there any reason why you chose Ethiopia as your kind of um, pilot country? Yeah. So as for now, my um, there's two case studies that I'm working on. The first one mm-hmm. is Ethiopia and the second one in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Ethiopia, it's because uh, it's it's kind of a funny story because I met my supervisor back in Cambridge uh, okay. while I was still doing my master's. And mm-hmm. she gave a talk. She had been working in Ethiopia for a number of years by then. Mm-hmm. And so I went to this talk uh, that she gave about her work and... Uh, and I found it so interesting. So I went to her and I said, look, I would love to join your team if you have, um, <laughs> you know, if you have space uh, yeah. in your research group. And at the time she didn't, um, uh, she didn't have funding for, for a PhD student. And then a year later, she emailed me saying, look, we have this MRC funding now. Do you still want to apply? Uh, so this oh, is how I met nice. her. Mm-hmm. And Ethiopia comes from this because like, the way in which she talked about her work there and then the conversations we had in the next year and a half mm. before I actually submitted the application for the PhD. To me, it was very interesting. And then, and then basically this is why Ethiopia. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then Argentina, because I had been where, like I had visited uh, the country before, mm-hmm. like that was also after the, my master's. And, and um, I was there on a conference. And because of this conference, I got uh, in touch with a, a, a lot of colleagues who work in the field over Local there. Local people, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and then just for, like, because of these professional reasons, we met with these specific colleagues on a number of occasions on different conferences. And, mm-hmm. and we developed a good working relationship because of this. And, um, and I was looking for different sites where that are different culturally, geographically, and in terms of, um, in terms of the, the resource, resources they offer for, um, in public health and specifically, specifically for developmental disorders. And it just made sense, um, in terms of, in terms of, a, for a comparative study as I was Okay. And, and how, how is that whole experience of, you know, doing your PhD in a different country and then actually doing field work in a different country? It must involve so much planning. Yeah. So I think, I think <laughs> you're right. <laughs> the, so this is something I really wanted to do for my PhD. Um, um, mm. I mean, although it's a doctoral program, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's about developing a very deep understanding of a particular topic, but yeah. Uh, I knew that I've always known that I'm more of a practical person. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to combine theory with practice. So on the one hand, I was looking specifically for this experience. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, it's like sometimes it's strange because, for example, the PhD friends that I've got who are based in the UK and based in the lab, um, I, I can't connect with them all the time because if I'm on field work I'm in a completely yeah. different country different mm. university so there's it's almost like having separate lives mm. absolutely so but then now with COVID does that affect the field I, I suppose it does affect field work yeah. doesn't it yeah so how, how, how do you work around that um right so I was extremely lucky let's put it this way because mm-hmm. literally the day that the first covid case was officially announced in ethiopia that was mm-hmm. my very last day of data collection there oh wow <laughs> like, like this was just so lucky good timing yeah yeah so i had completed the like all the data collection in ethiopia which mm-hmm. is good on the other hand, uh, I haven't yet started data collection in Argentina. And at the moment, Argentina's borders are closed for uh, non-residents. Um, yeah. So it looks like they are opening up now-ish. But um, mm. this means like now they allow residents from neighboring countries to enter. So there's a chance that I, I could eventually travel. Um, okay. But it is possible that, that it just won't happen, in which case... Um, so I did. I did collect enough data that I could write up my thesis just based on on the fieldwork from Ethiopia. Okay, um, I would. Bad. Yeah, it's fine, but I would like to do more. So mm. um, we'll see. What we decided with my supervisors is in January, if till January I have a clear view on whether I can travel to Argentina, then I would do the work there. Otherwise, I would either do work more work in Ethiopia or. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I would just write up as as things are as for now. So yes, COVID impacted my work as well substantially. 
Um, yeah. I, I think there's like, I don't think it's going to have a major disruption in, in my plans, luckily. Okay. That's good. And in terms of like your interest with psychology, do you remember where did it start? Did you always know that that's what you wanted to do? Right. So no, I didn't. When I was 18 and no, when I was 17 and we had to make the choice. Um, so I'm, I'm from Hungary and, and I was in Hungary at the time. I didn't have any plans whatsoever to, to move abroad. And and so I was working as a volunteer in a, in, a nas- in a local TV, and I loved doing that. So I thought wow. I was going to become a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I applied to the Faculty of Humanities in, in Budapest, in the university that, that has, um, well, to my knowledge, the best um, education in humanities. I applied there, okay. and I started a degree in, I, was ma- I majored in, in journalism, and uh, my minor was in French literature. Can you believe that? I studied medieval <laughs> French literature at the time. <laughs> oh, my God. What book did you do? Sorry? Which books did you do in French literature? Oh, if I could. Do you still remember oh, even no. one? It, <laughs> no, I actually forgot all of it. <laughs> did you even like it? Because French is my first language and I still hate French uh, literature. I mean, I did like it. So there was one book, I can't remember the title, but it was a, it's a 19th century book about a woman who, trans, who, who was a fox and she transferred into being a human. And I found oh my it, very, like, it was very interesting. I did like it, but I mean, it's not, I think I picked it because it just sounded like interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. But not that I had such a such an insight as to what I could do with learning media. (laughs) 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 And then, but then luckily during my first year of doing this, I realized that I do very much miss working with people. Mm -hmm. I also realized that as a journalist, I would have to, whether or not I like it, I would have to cover uh, like political and economics. Yeah. Mm, uh, mm. which I didn't want to do um, and then but we did have an introductory course to social psychology and I had an amazing professor um, mm-hmm. and that I just found it like so interesting like all the books we had a lot of books to read and everyone else was suffering but I loved it so much uh, oh, wow. so it became obvious to me that I had to apply to psychology and what's that was very your calling yeah <laughs> exactly and and that year uh, we were still lucky because in Hungary, there was a scheme that um, if you were, if you had very good grades and if you, like, if you had a good academic uh, transcript, you could mm-hmm. apply to the government so that they would fund a second degree that you would be doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, this is how I applied. And I was in the last year of, uh, I was in the last cohort who could do this. In the next year, they changed it. Oh, so, again, good timing. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay. And um, so now that you're doing the PhD, do you know where you want to take this in terms of a career? Yeah, I think I was just reflecting on this the other day. Um, Mm. I think I like very much what I'm doing right now. So that means I have research in my life through the PhD. Um, Mm -hmm. I have um, through through counseling and which I've been doing um, mm-hmm. as, as part of a counseling center. And also privately, I have practical work. 
I also do some teaching and, and I'm involved in some other social impact driven projects. So I think mm-hmm. I like it as it is. If I could keep doing things in this way, it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's in a different university or with different people, but I, I think I like the fact that I'm doing a number of different things, mm-hmm. um, but it all comes together nicely to me. So I think I would just like to keep doing the kind of things I'm doing now. Oh, that's really good. And and you talked about counselling. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Um, so all this, I, I used to do some clinical practice during my university years back in Hungary. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, then I stayed and worked in a, in a psychiatric hospital there. Um, and that was also in autism, actually. So I was working in, a, in an autism diagnostic clinic. Uh, and I loved, I loved doing that. But then when I moved to the UK, um, during the master's and during the PhD, the practical experience that I get is much less, um, like therapy oriented or, or Mm -hmm. practice. I mean, it's practical because I'm working with families, but I'm not doing, let's say like diagnostic work. Right. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But then as the pandemic started and the pandemic brought me back home to Hungary, uh, Mm um, I thought that you know, the number of people living under lockdown measures, uncertainty, having to adjust to remote work and such such things. I thought that as, as, as psychologists, this this was, at least to me, um, like a, a moral cause, so to say. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt that this is a, as professionals, this is something we, we have to tackle. Like, if, even just to give you an idea, when you start your degree as a psychologist, you have to go through um, an ethical sort of like like a, an ethical decree uh, okay. that is what you commit to as a psychologist. And one of the okay. main points is that um, you you help you have humanity or you help um, humans in in when they are in need, right? And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, this is now the time that there are so many mental health related consequences of this crisis. This is something mm-hmm. we have to work with. So. I was back in Hungary and then I emailed the university where I was previously studying. And then mm-hmm. I said, look, we could do something about this. And then, so they had an existing counseling center in mm-hmm. which psychologists were working, well, generally as counselors, right? And then, yeah. so we developed them a framework in which um, we did counseling with people who who were in need uh, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then, so we were, as we were doing this, I saw that there was more and more people getting in touch with us, being interested in this. Um, and and I, I just heard from various people who, who I previously worked with in a mental health field being like, oh, we need this so much at the moment. We really don't know how to help our employees, our colleagues, our students. Um, and then so from that, um, I saw this, this was also a good time for me to start my own, my own counseling center. So I did, and I've been doing it in like all in all the months since then. And I, I am, I mean, it's an experiment. We'll see if it. I mean, so mm-hmm. far it's been working. So, um, so yeah, you basically set up your own business now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. How how did you find this whole process? I know we've talked about this previously, but how did you find it setting up your own business on your own? So, uh, I think. The idea was clear to me, so I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I had mm-hmm. 
no background whatsoever. Right, where to start? (laughs) Exactly. Like all the practicalities of this was like, I knew nothing. Mm. And then luckily, so in the UK, um, I found a number of great organizations who offered um, like help, uh, a lot Mm -hmm. of advisors who because of COVID-19, they offered like an hour long call uh, to everyone who wanted to set up a business and so on. And so step by step, that's how I did it. And, and I found it incredibly helpful. Okay. That, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Well done on that. I think, I think (laughs) it's so daunting to set up something new and then, especially with the business aspect of it, you don't know much until you've done it yourself for once, but at least now you do. Um, And um, so I mean, I know you have AMCA online as well. Actually, what does AMCA stand for? <laughs> right. So AMCA, um, AMCA sta- it's, it's, it's a part of my family name. Uh, I, I, yeah, I can see that. Just I, <laughs> I just realized right now is that the, the second part of your name. Okay. <laughs> yes, because, you know, I was thinking so many of the sort of mental health platforms or counseling centers have a very spiritual name something like the blue yeah. ocean center oh yeah yeah like <laughs> and they wanted to move away from that narrative um, okay in the same time i also didn't want to give my own name to the center um and then i i just thought i need a, a short name that is relatively easy to pronounce easy to write it down mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this is how this is why the name Oh wow, that, that's very creative. <laughs> that, that that's cool. And and I know that with Amca, you you are trying to help corporate and individuals with kind of um, mental health, workplace related mental health um, support. So I know you've been interested in mental health in various aspects of it. Can you just share a bit about where the interest came from and what kind of work have you done in this area? Hmm. Sure. So as a psychologist, I think. Um, in, in the early years of, uh, during my undergrad, I did, uh, I think I tried internships and volunteering activities in all the different um, schools of psychology. So from HR to, to um, consultancy. And so I tried the various different things, but what always, what was always closest to my heart is, is working with, um, with people in, in a counseling format or in a diagnostic framework. Uh, during my undergrad, I really enjoyed this internship in the psychiatric hospital, especially with children and ad- uh, adolescents. And then after that, um, like after trying all these different things, I was like, that's what I enjoyed the most. And then, and then during my master's and the PhD as well, this is why I kept uh, my field close to developmental psychology or or clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. And then. And then along the way, I, I also came across all these things like stigma around mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, Workplace-related mental health was a topic that no one really liked to talk about before. It was something that, for various reasons, um, companies we were or employers were neglecting a little bit. It was something they, they talked about like on a superficial level, but it never really got to how we are going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so with Global Shapers, I was working on a, on a survey um, to see. Oh, yeah, we did that work together, didn't we? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then that survey was, um, so we stopped the work when the pandemic started. But this last month, we got back to it. Um, mm-hmm. So 
so that and that was around social determinants of mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that interests me a lot. Yeah, and um, and yeah, and mental health at the workplace. That's the other, the other mm-hmm. thing that that I find very interesting and very timely as well. Okay. And I mean, now that we've touched up on the Global Shapers, would you mind just giving a brief introduction to what a Global Shaper is? Sure. So Global Shapers as a community uh, is the youth initiative of the the World Economic Forum. I Mm -hmm. heard about them, uh, about the community uh, a few years ago when I was attending another conference and where uh, every second person was a global shaper. And so I thought, <laughs> and everyone was think like, everyone was really cool and everyone had these like very ambitious mindset with mm-hmm. great ideas. So I thought it would be great to join them. And then, so I applied um, almost three years by now um, mm-hmm. to the Cambridge Hub. And, um, and then after I joined, I've been, I think I've been very actively involved in, in various activities with them. And so this year mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curating to the hub, which is a very interesting experience because, um, because it's for, COVID. for <laughs> it's COVID time exactly. So it's it's just a strange experience, yeah. Uh, or at least not not an experience that I imagined when I actually applied to to be mm. a curator. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think same. So I also heard from about Global Shaper from other people when I was involved in a different charity and as you said every other person there was a global shaper and and then I looked into it further and I thought it was really interesting how um, the community is split up in between different hubs in different cities and countries such that then you can actually do local work and try to help people around which is what we've been trying to do um, mm-hmm. and we have been involved in several projects in the Cambridge Hub and yes now you're the curator which which means that you're the one in charge of the hub. And um, so you've talked about the mental health policy uh, survey thing that we worked on together. But I think the most impressive project I think we've done in our time is definitely Voices. Could you could you share a bit more about that? Sure. Um, so we started Voices a bit more than two years ago by now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all started from, um, from having attended Shape Europe two mm-hmm. years ago, uh, which is the regional European meeting of global shapers. And that was mm-hmm. in Belfast at that time. And so I met a number of amazing young ladies there and we were all, we all shared very similar experiences when it comes to public speaking, we're having access to opportunities and, and carrier, certain carrier routes. And mm-hmm. um, so we all thought, we all, shared the idea that as women, we, we come across barriers throughout our, our career that are non, not easy to, to address. And so we thought, okay, let's do something about this together. So this is how it all started. And then we spent the first six months just brainstorming, actually. Um, we had a call on Sunday nights every two weeks, and then we were thinking, okay, what is it that we could really do? Mm-hmm. And then we launched on International Women's Day, um in 2019 so in march Mm -hmm. and um we first started to develop a platform so voices was meant to be a platform that improves access to public speaking opportunities for women um, women in the early stages of their career and then Mm -hmm. this is how we started working and then 
And then over the time, we we broadened it up a little bit. So mm-hmm. by now, Voices, it's, it's a career development platform for women in the early stages of their career. And mm-hmm. we, this year, we launched a, a curriculum, a whole year-round curriculum mm-hmm. um, that consists of uh, monthly workshops on topics like workplace mental health, entrepreneurship, negotiation skills, financial literacy, public mm-hmm. speaking, so on and so forth. And uh, what we are aiming at is the women who attend these workshops, um, that they get access to uh, all these soft skills. They get some preliminary training on these different soft skills. They get access to a a database of additional resources on all Mm -hmm. of these topics. And in a LinkedIn community, we have them all together where we share further opportunities with them. Uh, mm-hmm. So what we are hoping to achieve by doing all this is is having um, a larger representation of women in in different industries and having mm-hmm. a, access to soft skills that are uh, industry agnostic, but that will help you progress in your career um, in either way. Okay, and and from my understanding as well, I think you know the reason that. Uh, a lot of events, a lot of talks, you usually you don't find women speakers there. And the reason people usually give is, oh, but I don't know any woman who is in this area or in this industry. We didn't know who would be a good speaker, who would be female. And I thought Voices is also trying to build this database, right, of women in different areas so that if someone is looking for a speaker in a different industry, they won't have this excuse of, well, I didn't know women in this industry. Am I right? Exactly. So that was the original idea. We shifted yeah. it a little bit. So that's why it's now not a database, but a LinkedIn community. And the okay. reason being that there is already a number of databases that are very, very well built uh, and that mm-hmm. exist. And what we did is we got in touch with these. One, one example is the Brussels binder. Um, mm-hmm. there is, it, it exists already and it's great. And so we got in touch with them. And so what we realized, what we could do and, and what we are doing anyways, is we are building this voices community, this community of, of women who all uh, aim to improve their skills. Um, mm-hmm. And then so within our community, we share opportunities with them. And some of these opportunities are through the databases uh, that already exist. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, we don't want to sort of, you know, build yet another thing for That's something true. that already exists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we are in communication with them. We work together with them. Um, so okay. that's why it's a community now, not not a database per se, but we work together yeah. with databases that already exist. Even better. Yeah, that, that's a very good idea. It, there's no point in creating additional noise. You might as well just partner with others. Exactly. Um, and... Okay, so you've been in the Global Shaper community. You were also part of One Young World. You're an ambassador there. Um, Out of these, you know, big groups where they are trying to promote leadership, push everyone to do social impact work and just, you know, be passionate about helping the world. Do do you think that um, women representation there is has reached 50 percent or do you think there's still more work to do? I think, I mean, within Global Shapers and I think also within One Young World, women representation, I don't think it's a problem. I haven't seen mm-hmm. it to be. And I think mm-hmm. at least I can say that within Global Shapers, it's part of the recruitment criteria for all the hubs. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have to make sure you have gender equality uh, okay. in terms of representation. In One Young World, I don't exactly know what the policy is, but 
to my observation, there hasn't been, been an issue with that. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. And and now that you're the curator and you have done several other um, leadership roles, um, what what's your opinion about, you know, leadership as a woman? What has been your experience? Right. Um, so this is a very interesting question because <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I mean, just purely based on my experience so far, the... Yeah. The difficulty for me that comes from that I relate to being a, a woman mm-hmm. is that um, I think we are socialized in a way, or at least I was socialized in a way that um, in certain matters, I lack the confidence to to make a decision because mm-hmm. um, because you know if if you're if you make a strong decision and you say this is the way in which we're going to do something that comes across as very strong, very harsh, yeah. not less, uh, not not collaborative, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But in the um, the kind of professional experience that I have so far, sometimes that is what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for me, women and leadership for me, the um, the barrier is that you have to overcome some of the the characteristics that you have that might very well come from the fact that you are socialized to be a woman. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think an advantage that comes from this is, I think for me, it's easier to be inclusive. It's mm-hmm. okay for me to show weakness as a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't mind it. I don't think I'm, I don't think that showing that I don't know something where I don't understand something makes me mm-hmm. less strong, you know? Um, because I can confidently say I am going to learn that don't you worry Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah so this is what I think okay yeah I totally agree with you on that in the sense that you know how for so many generations now women have been shown to you know don't take too much space don't be too loud so now it it is ingrained in us and and it's crazy the number of things that we absorb even when we are young and then that's why when you know now you're you are put in a leadership position there are still some systemic factors that are already in there that you kind of need to fight against Um, but I absolutely agree with what you said Um, okay so now I think just steering you away to something that I am most interested about is your blog. So wh- <laughs> why did you decide to start a blog? It's called The Traveling Psychologist. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about it. Okay, um, so I started this blog, I think four years ago by now, when mm-hmm. I moved to, uh, I went to Latvia for a few months and I was, um, I was doing a, a voluntary project there it's called the European Voluntary Service. And mm-hmm. so I, I spent a few months doing that. Um, and I started the blog because I thought it's interesting to post every now and then some thoughts or pictures about what I was doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, also just because people in Latvia, so that I was in living in a town, a small town co- called Tukums. It's uh, about 80 kilometers from Riga, the capital city. And, okay. um, and the people there were, there's not many foreigners there at all. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they knew that there's a couple of foreigners in town and they were <laughs> right. interested in us. They, they were, they yeah. invited me to like cook uh, one of the traditional Hungarian dishes for them and so oh, on. Wow. So okay. they were interested in me for my Hungarian friends. They were, Latvia was an interesting thing to sort of read about. It's not a typical destination 
mm-hmm. uh, where people would go. So this is how I started. And then over the time, um, when I moved to Cambridge, um, it became a platform for me where I could write about the experiences of starting a new life in in Cambridge specifically, which was mm-hmm. quite an unexpected space for me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I, later, when I thought more about um, how I would want to how I want to use this blog, what is who is my audience, what I want to write about, I realized that there's uh, certain questions, professional dilemmas that I personally find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't be topics that I would like. It, it's, it's not that I would write a, a journal article or a research yeah. paper about it, mm-hmm. um, but that I think they are interesting to be discussed on a public in a public space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's so. At the moment, this is what I'm doing uh, on the blog and traveling psychologies because partly I'm writing about being a psychologist and what kind of topics I come across. Mm-hmm. in my work and traveling because at least my PhD, but I think the other uh, projects that I'm involved in, they all involve different geographies, different locations. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why the traveling aspect. Oh, I like it. And, you know, I I also like try to be very consistent with my blog. But one thing I struggle with every week is just sometimes with content, because sometimes mm-hmm. So, like you'll have a week where you have four ideas about what to write and then you have weeks where you, you have no idea what to write about yeah so so how, how do you how do you work around this con- like content creation for the blog yeah so I had this conversation with myself about this and I decided that I'm not going to professionalize this blog mm-hmm. um, for the sake of not stressing about it so mm-hmm. I accepted that there's going to be months when I'm not going to share anything because simply okay. I don't have time or I don't have ideas mm-hmm. and I accepted it and it's, I, it's fine. It's something that I'm doing because I like to do it. Right. It doesn't, yeah. You know, there's no, it's just there because I enjoy doing it and, and I'll, for the foreseeable future, I'll, I'll keep it as such because otherwise I would start worrying about it. Oh yeah. I totally agree. And, um, okay. So, now, you know, I, I was just remembering that, you know how we did that panel at some point where we talked about mm. the role of youth in dealing with crisis, especially with COVID-19, yeah. because both of us have done loads of projects with young people, you know, like you've worked on the mental health app, I've worked on the um, social media campaign, and it, I think mm. it's really important to get young people involved. Um, would you like to just share your opinion on that? how how to involve young people in the yeah how, yeah how can we just make sure that you know we are offering a platform how can we encourage young people to get involved in dealing with um crisis but also generally with social impact mm. so um I'm, I'm just thinking a little bit because i think it's a very complex question it is um, <laughs> i'll i'll, I'll um, I'll debunk it into two things. One, okay. I think there are young people who proactively, who are there proactively uh, and mm-hmm. who come with ideas and who will knock on the door and be like, I'm here, I have these ideas, I want to do it. So I think when it comes to these young people um, who, are, who take initiative and who are proactively there, um, I think, for example, from a Global Shapers perspective, what we should do is accept them to the hub 
and provide them with a platform of you know like-minded people and 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 offer the resources what what we already have as as, as part of the network. Um, and for example, in this year's recruitment strategy, that was the main philosophy that we followed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there's someone who is great, then let's accept them. There's no problem with that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but I think there's a second layer to this, which is, I mean, to use involvement in crisis or youth involvement in decision-making in general, which is that, mm-hmm. it, which is about how young people are uh, educated and, mm-hmm. and in what culture they grow up. Um, and so I'm doing some teaching in Hungary and what I find, and that the, the, the young people I'm teaching are like undergraduates, mostly mm-hmm. some master's students. Um, but so between the ages of 18 to 21, 22, and something that I find striking is that a lot of young people don't know how to raise their voice or how to formulate an opinion about something. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a second level to youth involvement. So what I'm trying to do, at least with those students who come to my seminars, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to encourage them to say whatever they think and not to, you know, to speak up. Because, right. because if, if these students graduate in a way that they don't know how to formulate an opinion or they don't want to do that, uh, that would mean much less youth representation in general. Uh, mm-hmm. on, on questions that, that, that are important for a society. So I think when it comes to young people who are not necessarily proactively there, I think what is important is for them to, to offer a platform for them where they can learn such skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is something that concerns, um, you know, not only higher education, but, but um, high school and even Absolutely. earlier times. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, and now I think just, you know, we're, we're getting to the end. Um, I think if you, do you have any advice for someone who is considering, you know, going into psychology, whether it is before university or after, um, something that you wish maybe you knew earlier on, which could have helped you? Yeah. Um, and let me tell you a story about this, uh, which I come back right. in terms of my own uh, thinking and for my own reflection, I always come back to this one thing. So I was once, um, I had a call with a um, head of, uh, of a, a big company in, mm-hmm. in Europe. And the reason why I had that call uh, with this person is to, to, to get sponsorship for particularly Eastern European students um, to get to, to get to a conference, to get to mm-hmm. a youth conference. And, and then, and I was there with all my advocacy inspirations to be like, yes, young people, it's very important to have young people from Eastern Europe or from whichever region to be represented and uh, from different professions, but particularly from psychology and so on. And then this, um, this person asked me, uh, why do you think other young people can't do the same as you. Why are people making different decisions than you? And this question has been there for, for me ever since. I, I couldn't really answer this question to uh, at that point. I, I was I didn't know, and I don't. I still don't know. But I think something that this made me realize or learn um, is that is that there are so many people trying to stop us from doing what we want to do. 
mm-hmm. uh, and to make different decisions and to sort of pose a barrier to to us. And I think if if I was to to be back at that point, like okay, what I'm going to study? Do I want to be a psychologist or not? I would still just go for it because because yes, because otherwise I would I would keep doing what other people want me to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this is something I also see through the through different different uh, clients I worked with um, mm-hmm. in in as a psychologist um, mm-hmm. that people tend to regret when they don't go for it, mm-hmm. uh, and then they sink back and they're like, "I spent all this time doing what others wanted me to do," and so yeah. for me this is a big learning. This is okay. I remind myself every now and then that. I should be mindful of, I, I should be grateful if I do have the choice to do what I want to do. And if I do have that choice, then I should go for it because otherwise I'm going to regret it. So yeah, Absolutely. long story short, I, I think this is what I want to say. <laughs> That's great advice. Thank you for that. And final question. This is a bit of a fun question. Do you have um, like a either a defining moment or a favorite moment during your career or during your studies where you know it always comes to mind makes you feel happy and it's something that you know kind of is is personal to your career choice kind of thing <laughs> yes yes i do actually okay uh, and it was it was in the psychiatric hospital in hungary where i worked mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. was um second or third year undergraduate third year undergraduate yes I was 21 years old and mm-hmm. um, and so in this psychiatric hospital, the other, it was an adolescent clinic. So we had patients up to 18 years old mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we had a patient who was an 18 year old boy uh, who was brought in by the ambulance and, mm-hmm. and he was on the autistic spectrum and he was never, uh, he was never, be- he has never been to a hospital before or has never seen a psychologist before and I I was given the task to spend the day with him okay and and just to be with him he was severely aggressive he he was nonverbal. he was uh very agitated and mm-hmm. and I spent the day with him and and he was only three years younger than me he was very mm-hmm. similar to me in age and you know the kind of options that he would have had mm-hmm. um and and I I I had no idea what to do with him. Like there was no way for me to figure out how to handle that situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and not that others around me had an idea, but um, <laughs> like it was, it was just such a challenging situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no way to ask him, why are you so angry? Why are you, yeah. why? It was because he was nonverbal, right? Yeah. And then, and then, and then, you know, he, there was no way for him to communicate that he was hungry or he was, Ooh. he didn't understand where he was. Like there was no way to communicate with him or that mm-hmm. he communicates with us. And that mm-hmm. for me was, and at the time I heard about autism before, but I never experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for me, like that was when I decided, okay, I would like to specialize in this because it's is so shocking to me that I'm, I'm here mm. with this boy who is sort of like me, but it's like as if we were from different planets. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so this is for me, this was something that really defined, I think, my career choices since then. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely. Then you, you made a good decision. We need more people like you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing this story with us. And <laughs> thank, you. Um, thank you for being here today, Sophia. I hope you had fun. Um, Very but much. yeah, <laughs> thank you. And I'll see you soon. See you. And thank you for having me here. Bye.